Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. just under a month to go now until the 2023 New York State Legislative Session is scheduled to end. A number of issues are still on the negotiating table. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt takes a look. Some major items didn't make it into the state budget, which was passed over a month late on May 2nd. One is Governor Kathy Hochul's ambitious plan to build 800,000 housing units in the next decade to help ease the affordable housing crisis. It included a proposal to allow the state to override local zoning laws if local government leaders resisted plans to build new homes and apartments. The legislature objected to that, and the governor eventually dropped all of her housing proposals from the budget. Democrats who lead the Senate and Assembly also want any housing package to include more rights for tenants. The governor, speaking in late April after she announced a conceptual budget agreement, says she'll try again. We're going to take the time necessary to talk about other ways that we can make sure that we're building housing stock. We're going to be looking at the suburbs. We're going to talk about our transit hubs and find a path forward because we're not surrendering on this issue. But Hochul says with so little time left in the session, any action to ease the housing crisis might have to wait until 2024. Let's sit down with the housing chairs and come up with a thoughtful approach, work on it throughout the next year as well, and look at it again next year's budget. The new budget does include changes to the state's bail reform laws, but some other criminal justice changes did not make it. A measure known as Clean Slate is gaining some momentum and key backing. It would expunge the records for some people convicted of crimes who've served their sentences, giving them a better chance to get a job. The state's business council supports it, and many companies, including National Grid, have recently come out in favor of it. And Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty says it's a top priority. I think we will actually, we will definitely consider clean slate before the end of session. Survivors of sexual harassment, including former Fox News anchor Gretchen Carlson, are pressing for a bill that would outlaw non-disclosure agreements of all kinds. Carlson, who sued the former head of Fox News, Roger Ailes, for harassment and retaliation, signed a non-disclosure agreement as part of a settlement. As a result, she says she can't talk publicly about what's happened, even though it's been the subject of numerous news articles and even a Hollywood movie. Carlson has since co-founded the survivors' advocacy group Lift Our Voices. This bill puts the power back in the hands of the survivors. If we've learned anything since the beginning of this movement six and a half years ago, it's that the only way to fix bad behavior at work is to be able to talk about it. We need to stop silencing people with forced arbitration and NDAs. Every worker deserves a voice. The push comes at a time when two members of the state assembly have been accused of harassment. It also comes as Governor Hochul fired a top political advisor, Adam Sullivan, over allegations that he fostered a toxic work environment and was demeaning to younger women on the governor's staff.
Other measures being considered as the session winds down include aid in dying. That would give terminally ill people the right to use medication to end their lives at the time of their choosing, and bills to strengthen voting rights, including a requirement that ballot amendments be written in plain, easy-to-understand language. The legislature could stay past the final day of session, scheduled for June 8th, if they wanted more time to tackle these issues. But Speaker Hastie says that's unnecessary. I don't see the need to uh, extend session by any days at this point. Last year, the session also ended in early June to leave time for primary elections at the end of the month. But lawmakers reconvened in early July to strengthen the state's gun laws after a U.S. Supreme Court decision struck down the state's concealed carry statute. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Although North Country state representatives are not happy about the process, they are encouraged by the potential impact the new state budget should have on northern New York. Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley has more. The $229 billion budget came in more than a month late. This is the 7th budget 115th District Assemblyman D. Billy Jones has voted on, and the Democrat says it's the most frustrating. But at the end of the day, I think uh, delivered to a lot of organizations here in the North Country, and we were able to get some good stuff in the budget for the North Country. In the Assembly District just to the south, 114th District Republican Matt Simpson says there is no rational excuse for the late budget, nor the lack of time given rank and file to review the proposal once there was an agreement. I think all of the other members are in the same situation where they have kind of a conceptual idea of what's in the budget and maybe particular uh, priorities that they've been tracking. But, you know, as we've seen over the years, a lot of policy pops in and out of the budget, and that's where it gets very difficult. And ultimately, I think our constituents suffer from that process. Democrat Jones counts a number of items he supported or proposed. We did increase funding to the hospitals in nursing homes at a higher rate than they've been at in several years. Infrastructure is always very important to me. We added a $100 million fund to help out with chips and roads and bridges, you know, in agriculture and in small businesses. A lot of the Adirondack initiatives, I fought hard to get in the budget. Tourism helped uh, get funding for that in this year's budget. So there's a lot of things. I know it's a big budget. While Jones cites increases for nursing homes, Republican Simpson criticizes the budget for failing to reach higher nursing home reimbursement rates that had been proposed. I'm disappointed to see that it was funded at 6.5%. You know, knowing that our nursing homes were facing a crisis now with retention of providers in the facility as well as being able to recruit providers. Simpson, whose district includes a substantial portion of the Adirondacks, is pleased that record funding for the Environmental Protection Fund was a priority in the budget. I'm very pleased to see that this has mass support in the legislature. There are a lot of programs that are going to be sustainable into the future, protecting our natural resources, and, and I'm very pleased with it. It's important for my region, and it's important, I believe, to all New Yorkers. There was, you know, an emphasis in this budget to address, you know, the child care issue that we've been facing, as well as workforce development. We saw significant funding and focus on that. Those programs are widely supported and important for the future of New York. 
Jones says one critical area that did not receive appropriate funding stands out. I'm happy that we didn't raise taxes on New Yorkers, but we didn't get anything in housing in there. We had a chance to do something. We didn't. We have to tackle this. I mean, we can't just put our heads in the sand. People need to be able to afford to live here. According to the state constitution, the New York budget must be approved by April 1st. The budget passed on Wednesday, just over a month overdue. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government, politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartalk spoke with Ed Cox, chair of the state Republican Party in New York this week, about bail reform and the changes that Governor Hochul was able to gain in the budget. Still a huge issue. I don't understand this lease. I'm a lawyer. I still I still don't understand the least restrictive issue. What that does. The bottom line is we still do not have a. The judges cannot consider a dangerous uh, uh, issue with respect to a defendant as to whether uh, to uh, have him put under lar- a large amount of bail or not. And that we're the only state that does not permit judges to consider whether or not the uh, the defendant or the accused, whatever you want to call the the mm. the, the person, uh, whether or not the person is dangerous to the community. Only state. And until that gets changes, there's really they have not really impacted the issue. And then there's the issue with respect to discovery loss. Uh, assistant DAs are leaving in droves because they're, they're, they have to look at, turn over any evidence that they have that is related. If they don't turn up to with the issue that the, uh, that the accused is being accused of, and uh, if they don't do it, the accused goes free. It's not, whether it's relevant or not, a little bit of evidence that they had something and the defense lawyer can say, ah, you didn't turn that over, and the, uh, and the uh, and defendant goes scot-free. That's why 60% of these cases are dismissed, and that's very frustrating for, for assistant DAs. And so there, there are real issues still with our criminal laws here and the uh, cashless bail reforms that were made. What's the fix? What's the fix? The fix is to permit uh, judges to consider a dangerous uh, criteria with respect to the defendant and also with respect to discovery laws. Make It has to be relevant, not just related to the issues of which the uh, defendant is being accused. It sounds reasonable. What's the resistance? Anything related as opposed to something that is really relevant and is significant with respect to the otherwise uh, minor stuff.
can cause a an accused to walk free. A guy, person who's murdered someone, can walk free simply because something that was related, a piece of evidence that that the uh, the, the district attorney had under their control, did not turn it over to the defendant's counsel, even though it is not significant. It was uh, really unrelated to the uh, – uh, it wasn't relevant with respect to the crime. But I'm sorry to push back on this, but isn't it important that you know prosecutors and others adhere to the law and defendant's rights, and isn't this the way we do it? Sure, and they always do. But the law's got to be sensible, and that's not a uh, having a dangerous, not having a dangerous criteria for judges to consider in whether or not to uh, to free a defendant onto the streets. Uh, <laughs> that's not common sense. The problem, of course, is that judges are human beings. They look at somebody's face. They may even look at their color. And so we try somehow to deal with that, don't we? That's irrelevant to whether someone's dangerous or not. If someone's got a record of beating up people, let's say someone has a record of of actually having a murder conviction that was pleaded down or this or that, and they uh, someone else, they're involved in a homicide, and the judge can't look back at the record and say, hey, this guy is dangerous. He's already been involved in a homicide. Now he's in another one. Uh, and so under present conditions, the judge could let the guy go go, go in free into the streets. We're talking to Ed Cox, chairman of the New York State Republican Party. And so the question is, what else do you like in the budget, and could you try to be specific? Well— let me tell you what I don't like about it. Uh, what I don't like about it is that it's a $229 billion budget, which is more than the budgets of Florida, which has more population than New York State, and Texas, which has about an equal population, combined. And it is an increase over the last five years of about 20%. We need to have some budget discipline. And even the budget office of the governor predicts that there will be a $20 billion deficit over the next three years. That means that they're going to have to – if that deficit that is presently locked in continues and they don't cut back some of the expenditures, they're going to have to increase taxes again in the highest tax state in the United States. And that means productive citizens are going to continue to leave this state in droves. So Republican County executives in Orange and Rockland counties have declared states of emergency in response to New York City's proposed plan to send asylum seekers to be temporarily housed in those counties. What's your take on that situation? New York City has long declared itself a sanctuary city for immigrants which means that the immigration laws do not apply to an individual, an immigrant, who actually is in New York City. And that has attracted to New York City a number of illegal immigrants. And they are here. Now, with Biden's open border policy, come on, come all, and come into the United States. And 60,000 of the 5 million or so who have crossed the border, illegal immigrants who have come into the United States during Biden's administration, 60,000 are here in New York City. And apparently that is blowing a hole in the city's budget. 
a billion dollar hole and they expect it to rise to five billion. So they're saying, gee, we're going to offload some of this onto Rockland County. Well, guess what? Rockland County is not a sanctuary county. They disagree with New York City. If New York City is going to be a sanctuary city and wants to attract illegal immigrants, New York City should deal with it, not Rockland County. That's Ed Cox, chairman of the state Republican Party in New York, speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartonk. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. With New York embracing electric cars, a new study finds the Empire State second in the nation when it comes to EV readiness. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas has more. President Joe Biden's goal is that 50% of all new vehicle sales will be electric by 2030. The push to electrify in New York is being defined with a state goal of phasing out all fossil fuel-powered cars by 2035. Officials say New York's efforts line up with automakers' projections for electric vehicle production and follow a similar move by California. According to research prepared by Bumper.com consumer advocate Carrie Sharon, New York is one of a handful of states that have at least one public EV charge port in every county. New York is doing a great job as far as like adding public chargers in more counties. In fact, it's only one of 11 states that has at least one public EV charger in every county. Just 11 states. Um, which was really mind, you know, boggling to me, the fact that, you know, in you know five years, eight years, we're supposed to have the entire U.S. at this point of um, adoption, and only 11 states right now have one pub, at least one public EV charge port in every single county. How are we expecting lower-income communities to be able to adapt and adopt um, this type of technology and vehicle? Sharon says New York ranks ninth for EV chargers per 10,000 people. With 9,000 charger ports and 7.7 per 10,000 um, residents. So that's 161% more than the national average charge ports per 10,000 people. So New York is, you know, getting the thumbs up as far as, you know, moving forward towards that goal of EV adoption. The long story short here is not only in New York, but in, in all counties across the U.S., we really have to make sure that we're pushing to kind of democratize the access to EV charge ports in every single community if we're going to hit that goal. Sharon says Warren, Hamilton, Essex, Albany, and Schenectady, in that order, are the counties in New York with the most charge ports per 10,000 people. But the report suggests those living in minority communities, low-income neighborhoods, and rehabilitated downtowns where row houses and apartments serve as primary residences may find it more difficult to maintain electric vehicles for everyday use. Predominantly white communities or counties have three, roughly three charge ports per 10,000 people. 
that's more than double the number of charge ports available to predominantly black or African-American counties. The city of Albany was awarded a grant from the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation to install 28 level two electric charging ports at 14 stations. Mayor Kathy Sheehan says the project is funded through the DEC's Municipal Zero Emissions Program. We are really working to ensure that we build out the infrastructure that we're going to need to support uh, electric vehicles in the city of Albany. We're really thrilled that we were selected for this grant. It's going to allow us to continue to build those out. We've been partnering with Albany Parking Authority to get them in our garages. Um, and then we are you know, building out our on-street infrastructure. So these are investments that are going to be needed. The federal government is providing significant incentives for people to switch to uh, electric vehicles, and we need to be ready to support them. Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy says the electric city has facilities in place ready to charge EVs. It's part of the build-out that's going on, so some of it's on street. Sometimes uh, it's, again, on the individual homeowners are putting chargers in. But Schenectady you know, last year was designated as the electric vehicle city of the year in the country because of our innovation in terms of deploying that, educating people and creating uh, viable options as we transition from internal combustion engines to electric powered vehicles. Fellow Democrat Phil Steck of the 110th State Assembly District says climate change is here and there's no time to waste to help New York achieve its goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 85 percent by 2050. The problem with climate is it's a gradual accumulation that leads to long-term disaster. And that's why we have to address it now by building up the infrastructure. Utility National Grid responded to a request for comment via email saying it's working with local municipalities, regulators, and others to find the right solutions for a variety of customers. All customers will be looking for ways to adapt to a more electrified future, and we will be working to help them find those solutions. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. The Adirondack Park Agency settled a long-standing debate at its meeting this week over a road mileage limit inside the park. The APA also clarified its public commenting policy and approved the use of an herbicide on a lake in the southern Adirondacks. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell has more. Eurasian water milfoil was first discovered in Lake Luzerne in 1989. There are now dense pockets of the invasive plant around the lake's periphery. At its board meeting on Thursday, the APA's Dave Plant explained why Eurasian water milfoil is such a tough plant to tackle. It has no native predators in the Northeast, and it can form dense beds of vegetation. And once established, it's difficult if not impossible to eradicate. In recent years, though, there's been a push to use an herbicide known as Priscillacor. It's not considered toxic to fish or other animals and only slightly toxic to invertebrates. It's also been used in 30 lakes around New York State, including Minerva Lake, also in the southern Adirondacks. Plant told the board on Thursday that since Priscillacor was used on Minerva Lake in 2020, there's been a rebalance of native plants there. There's some that increased, some that decreased, but they're all natives and they're finding a competitive balance in a restored wetland after the treatment. So this is being deemed a complete success then? Uh, in staff's analysis, yes. The town of Lake Luzerne applied for a permit to use Priscillacor on its lake. 
They would have to gather data on its effects over the following year. But APA board member Zoe Smith pushed for a longer post-treatment survey. We'd like to know the effectiveness, right, of whether or not it's working and then what the impacts are on the other plants. And the hand harvesting will give us the milfoil numbers, but not the, other, the rebound, like you said, of the other plants. The herbicide treatment is estimated to cost the town $37,000. Board member Jerry Delaney said requiring a longer post-treatment survey of the lake, as Smith suggested, would add unnecessary costs for the town of Lake Luzerne. Local governments get squeezed between trying to do what is right and trying to not break a tax cap and trying to tell the rest of their town that, yes, we we should be spending this money on these lakes. No, you don't get a whole lot of, of benefit out of it. Zoe Smith was the lone vote against the measure. The rest of the board voted in favor of the use of an herbicide on Lake Luzerne. The other major item on the APA's agenda was the road mileage limit in wild forest lands in the park. The original master plan for the Adirondacks said there shouldn't be any material increase of wild forest roads from 1972 onwards. On Thursday, the board settled the debate. First, they agreed that there were 211 miles of roads back then and 206 miles today. The board also defined what a material increase would be, about 11 percent or an additional 13 miles of roads on wild forest lands. APA board member Joe Zalewski applauded their work on the issue. We've been talking about it a year, and you know this approach at least would provide APA and DEC staff with the clarity that they need you know, on this issue moving forward. And, and it provides a limited amount of road mileage available um, should there be appropriate opportunities on future acquisitions. But defining the road mileage limit on wild forest lands puts some board members on edge. What if the state buys a plot of land with 14 miles of roads and wants to add it to a wild forest area? Then they'd have to get rid of one mile of road elsewhere. APA board member Mark Hall said he was uneasy about that. At some point, maybe another 50 years, maybe 100 years, maybe five years, you know, we don't know what might become available. And I struggle to to support putting that threshold on this board, on the DEC moving forward. The final measure does allow for future APA boards to reinterpret the total allowable mileage. Still, Mark Hall and fellow board member Dan Wilt voted against the measure. It passed eight votes to two, ending a year of extensive debate and revisions over the topic. Finally, the APA board settled its own policy debate. The agency was considering limiting public comment periods, both at its meetings and written comments on its agendas. The proposal drew backlash, though, with about 600 public comments largely opposing the move. The APA's Chris Cooper summarized those comments on Thursday. This was a general topic that came up again and again with most commenters is the importance of public comment to the agency's processes, Uh, making sure that the public has the right to provide input, that that input is heard, uh, that that input is considered, and the board has the ability to process it. The board voted unanimously to keep the public comment periods both at the start and end of its meetings. APA staff said it would also post its meeting agendas two weeks in advance, giving more time for public comments on those agendas. The next APA board meeting is in mid-June. That's North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell reporting.
And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Alan Shartoff. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Look for program number 2319. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustinovich.